0: Good morning. First of all, thank you so much for that song selection. That was perfect. You'll notice a number of those songs were about the grace of God, which is deeper than the oceans and higher than all of the mountains. The latter part of the message this morning, we'll be, uh, we'll be looking at that. Looking out this morning, and this is the second time that I've experienced all of us together as one. And what a powerful thing this is on its own, to see the numbers all gathered together under one roof, to hear every voice lifted up together to our great God. And seeing the magnitude of this group, it makes the hurdles in this world seem less big, doesn't it? What could we do with a group like this to win the world, to change the face of the culture, not only in Abilene, but as far as Jesus is concerned, across the whole world. You are the light of the whole world, and I am certainly filled up and strengthened by this. If you're visiting this morning, we welcome you. This is a place where the entirety of the leadership and everyone who is here, they want to be a city set on a hill. We want to be a place where the world can look and find light, wisdom, answers, direction, a firm resolve, an unwillingness to shift and change as culture changes. And we are so glad that you are here with us and joining in. In one of Shakespeare's lesser-known plays, Troilus and Cressida, it was set amidst the Trojan War, and some Greek generals were gathered together, and they were having a conversation about why it was that they could not advance on Troy. They'd been fighting for years, and they seemed to be at a standstill. Why aren't we advancing? Why aren't, why aren't we able to defeat Troy. And some of them were standing up to say, some of the generals were standing up to give credence to Troy and the the testing that Troy had undergone prior to this point and how it was, they had proven themselves to the gods that they believed in. And because of this, they were able to stand and they were simply stronger. And another general stood up after this conversation had happened and he said that he didn't think that it was because of an inherent strength in Troy that they were unable to defeat the enemy. He said it was rather due to a weakness within. It is not due to the strength of Troy, he said, but rather it has something to do with a weakness within us. I was thinking about that this week, and I thought about the great enemy of the church. We see him everywhere. We see his ploys, we see his schemes. We see it socially, we see it across the entirety of this nation, we see it abroad. But I was thinking also about the great enemy of my own soul and the warring that I see in my own soul and how that battle isn't something that's merely corporate but it's individual and it's private. And I thought about what John said when he said, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The enemy of the church and the enemy of your own soul is not at all greater or stronger than the living God. In fact, he's infinitely weaker than he is. And so if we are to defeat him, where do we begin It isn't an inherent strength in the enemy that we see him winning battles across the culture, that we see him swaying entire generations. It's not a great strength that he has, but rather it has to do with a weakness within. If we're to win the world, and I believe every prophecy in Scripture says that we will, if we're to win the world, then we must turn into ourselves and deal with the things in our own midst when Jesus began his ministry there's this scene of him entering the temple and it's somewhat of a violent scene he has this whip and there were nine strands on it and I it's hard for me to fathom this Jesus that sometimes we we, we have a caricature developed of him and you go to that story and it completely undermines that caricature he goes into the temple and he's driving people out with a whip and he's turning over the tables and he's casting out the money chang- changers and, and it the disciples Jesus speaking on this John com- commenting on this he says that zeal for my father's house would consume me. This is an Old Testament scripture. Jesus went in, as he's beginning his ministry, which, which is, a, it's a worldwide ministry. At the, at the very end of the life of Jesus, you see him ascend to the highest place, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Go therefore and disciple all of the nations. All of it is mine. That's the big end goal. The big end goal is to disciple all the nations, and yet where did Jesus begin in his ministry? He began in the temple of God. He began in the house of God, and, and the, perhaps the most violent scene that you see of Jesus driving out any wickedness and idolatry was in the house of God, the temple of God. In the 21st century, what is the temple of God? It's both the church and it's both your body and my body. And I do believe that we can win this world, but where we will begin has a great deal to do with how we're going to do that. I want to Kind of shift gears for just a second, and then we're going to circle back to this idea. We've been, for five weeks now, looking at practical Christianity. And I've said at the beginning of each of these lessons that a theology is only as good as its practice. I want for us to have tools on our Christian workbench to be able to deal with these things that we're being called to in Jesus Christ. So this is the third and final lesson on how to put away sin. But be- before we get into the, the meat of it, I want to bring out a, a misunderstanding, I think, that we sometimes have. It comes out in conversation. It's sometimes postured that in the eyes of the living God, every single sin of man has the same weight. That in the eyes of God, every sin of man has is, is equal. There are no lesser sins, there are no greater sins. And so if we were to address an issue that we would deem more egregious, homosexuality, abortion, some of the murder, some of these kinds of things, if we were to address those things, the common rejoinder is, well, don't you know that All sins in the eyes of God are equal, and therefore, if you jaywalked on the way to church this morning, you have no right to call the world to repent of sexual idolatry. This is the idea, right? But I want to challenge it with this simple thought. If in the eyes of God all sins are created equal— then why in the Old Testament did God have a sacrificial system where there were levels of sacrifices to be made depending on the kind of sin that was committed? At times, the thing offered was a turtle dove or a goat. At times, God said, bring your choicest bull. At other times, in Leviticus 20, there's a very precise and specific list of capital sins does God see them all the same? No, I, I don't think that he does. Now, I'm, I'm going to make kind of an unlikely conclusion to that. God is, what, what we're trying to say when we say God sees all sin the same, it's a wrong statement, but what we're trying to say is the living God is, and, and I can't raise my arm as high as I would like to because of my, my shirt that's here, the, the, in a suit, this is about as high as you can go, but I want to go all the way. The living God, the standard of the living God is supremely higher than we can even imagine. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. God dwells in unapproachable light. He is perfect in every way. In him is light and there is no darkness at all. He's perfectly just, perfectly good in every way. Jesus, in his perfection, was the the perfection of God lived out by way of the law. God's standard is so high that even if we were to attain to just short of it, even if we could attain to 99% of it, even the smallest infraction would keep us out of the presence of God. I think that's what we mean when we say that all sins have an equal, they're all equal. They're not all equal but they will equally keep us out of the presence of God. But I think that understanding the way that sin works and the categories in which they exist, even in the mind of God, I think there's a practical lesson that we can learn on how to overcome them. As I've said for the past few times we've been talking about how to kill sin, for a lot of my life, I knew the command. I knew the command, you know, stop sinning. How can we who died to sin, still live in it, repent. I knew the command. I knew that there was a difference in standard. I knew that I was expected to be holy, but as to how to do it, a lot of times there was an impasse. And I think that understanding these categories, there's, there's a wisdom there. And I'm gonna show you in just a moment a psalm that I, that I think shows us a practical way to combat sin in our lives, in the local church, and then uh, in order that we would be able to win the broader world look at look at what James says in James chapter one he says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire then desire when it has and notice the terminology that he uses when it has conceived when it has conceived it gives birth to sin so if you were to imagine the size of this sin it, it, it was conceived meaning it was something was Ordered in the mind that was leading to this, and then the sin happened. The sin transpired, and he says it gives birth to sin. It, it, uh, but a, but a birth brings forth what? Something that is smaller. It brings forth a baby. It's it's still he calls it sin. It's still sin, but it is smaller. And then he says, and sin. And notice the terms. When it is fully grown, this is this is that same. S- you know, baby that was born, this is sin, and then it just keeps growing. When it is fully grown, the end result is death. But notice that he does speak of sizes. There's, there's, there's lesser, and that moves into greater in a very organic, very natural way. Okay? The Greek, think about this. The Greek word for sin meant to miss the mark. It was an archer's term. I'm just trying to get us to see, to, to envision this. This is gonna help us practically. Imagine an archer who steps up to the line and he has his target and he, he draws back on his, on his bow and he releases and that arrow strikes one centimeter to the right of the center dot. He sinned. Technically, he sinned. Now imagine someone who follows him, a, a, a drunken man who stumbles up to the line His vision is unclear. He cannot see the target. He doesn't know exactly where he's shooting. He draws back. He stumbles and falls and as he's falling he releases the arrow and it flies in the opposite direction and lands in the bushes. He sinned. And yet is there a difference between these two? There's a difference between the two. They're not the same. Speeding And murder are both illegal. And yet, these two are not the same. God knows this. Parents dealing with children and the infractions that they bring know this. And if we will begin to understand sin like this, it will help us to combat it. So, all I want to do this morning is look at one scripture from the Old Testament. It's a very short scripture from Psalm 19. I want to show this, I want to show this to you by way of the scriptures. And then give some practical suggestions for how we combat this. And then we're going to finish with a word of grace concerning the gospel of Jesus. Here's the scripture. This is Psalm 19. David says, who can discern his errors? Before I really got into this book, I, I didn't think I had a whole lot of errors. I felt pretty good. The more I read it, the more numerous they become. They were really there all along. I'm just illuminated to them. And David was a man who was a man after God's own heart. This was a man whose mind stayed on the scriptures. This was a man who said, blessed is the man who, who, you know, who who." Whose law, or who meditates on the law of God day and night? He goes there in his mind all through the Psalms of David. He says, "My mind is here. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck in the Scriptures, always considering the law of God." And his his re, his reaction to this is, "Who can discern his errors?" In fact, Psalm nineteen is about this. It's about the revelation of God and the magnitude of it. And so he he finishes with this rhetorical question who can discern his errors but notice what he then says he says declare me innocent from hidden faults keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins let them not have dominion over me then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression did you see the three categories of sin that David brings forth Declare me innocent from hidden faults. And then he says, keep back your servant. So just by virtue of this word also, this tells us he's speaking of a different category now. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. And the result of that would be, see there that word, then or therefore, here's the conclusion of that. If I'm I'm declared innocent of hidden faults, and if you keep me back from presumptuous sins, then the result is, and notice how he puts the comparative on this. He says, then I shall be innocent and blameless, or blameless and innocent of, what does he say? Great transgression. Okay? Okay. Do you see those three categories that he gives? Hidden sin, in it, what, is, what's he talk, what is hidden sin? I don't think he's talking about sin that we hide from others because we can hide even great sins from others. I think by hidden sin, what David is talking about is related to his question. The question there at the beginning of verse 12 is who can discern his errors? Who can, who can know them? He's saying, I, I don't even know how to discern it. They, they run so deep in me, I don't know what they are. So he's saying, declare me innocent from hidden faults, these ones that I don't even know. I'm, I'm confident that I'm sinning in ways that I don't even know that I'm sinning. But then he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. In the Old Testament, this is the idea of sinning with a high hand. These, these are the kinds of sins that are either socially acceptable or compared to great sins, these are th- sins we just simply don't see as that big of a deal, and so we just don't deal with them. They're either socially acceptable ones, or they're ones that we've done for so long that they've simply become a part of us and we just excuse them. These are the presumptuous sins. These are not the life-ruining sins. These are not the life-altering sins. These are the ones that you may do in a, you know, in a workroom, gossiping with coworkers. These are the ones that you can just... You do in front of your family, and they'd have no uh, real question about it. But he says, dear God, keep, declare me innocent from hidden sins, these ones I don't know. Keep me also back from presumptuous sins, the ones that I excuse that, that probably because of a lack of perception, I don't see them as big as I ought to see them. And then if I do that, what does he say will be the result? The result will be, if I deal with these things over here, the result will be, I, I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. I want you to see the psalmist has no problem saying there are categories of sin. There's even a category of great sin. These are the David and Bathsheba and Uriah type sins. These are the sins that would completely set a a person's uh, life on a a different course. They may never get back what they had before. Those those are those kinds of sins. He has no problem categorizing them. And saying there's such a thing in the eyes of God as great sin, but he does not make the conclusion that the enemy makes to you and me quite often. You'd think that he'd say because they're lesser, then it's not as big of a deal. But the thing, in fact, that David says is all of them are a stream that goes to the same place. So this like James who said it starts, it's, it's just conceived and then you give birth and it's small and it's perhaps more manageable but it will grow and it will eventually lead to death he's saying they all go to the same direction the conclusion is not because there's some that are bigger than others then we deal with the others less severely in fact the psalmist is saying because these others lead to the big ones deal with them most directly This has been the greatest help in my personal walk with Jesus is is recognizing and understanding there are things that I could do that would ruin my life. There are things I could do that would ruin my family that would, in fact, cost me my soul. There are things that I could do. I've seen it happen in my ministry. I don't want that to happen, so what will I do? I'll deal with the sins when they're small. I'll deal with the sins that are lesser. The finish line is just ahead of us. I don't know when that day's gonna be. It's either gonna be when the Lord calls me home, which could be tonight, or it's gonna be when Jesus comes home, which could be next week. None of us knows but I'm looking forward to that day, and I want to be ready for that day. The other day, I saw this image. It was, imagine a person, they, they dipped their finger in water and then just kind of pressed it into the sand, and they lifted it up, and it was just a photograph of a finger that just had these granules of sand on the end of it, and the caption underneath it said, Your life and then next to it was an image of this as far as the eye could see beach and it said your eternity that that struck me to my core and it put it in perspective for me Perhaps greater than any other image that I've ever seen To know the gravity of the daily life that I live I understand that there are some sins That would ruin a person's life right now But there's any sin that could ruin a person's soul I'm thinking of that eternal day And I want to be ready for it Don't you? We're working to that day With a group like this We can accomplish anything There are endless resources here. There are people involved in every kind of industry. There's every kind of skill set. There's every kind of maturity level. We have every reason to win the world. And what I'm saying is, let's deal with the small sins. Let's deal with those ones that have not gotten so big that they're unmanageable. So here's what we do. This This is very simple. What we do is, it's two things. We go to God, as, as he's asking, he's talking to God, saying, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Go to God and say, God, help me to, help me to know what's in there that I haven't seen yet. Help me to see it. I'm, I'm sure that I'm blind to my sin and perhaps seeing others not as clearly as I should. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Help me to know those things in me that are against your will that I'm not even aware of yet. That's the first thing that we do. And the second thing that we do is we take those sins that we are aware of, the presumptuous sins, the ones that we know, and we list them off before the throne of God. Go to the throne of God and call them as they are. This is what David did. Dear God, keep me back from presumptuous sins. I don't want to make excuses for them. If they're a sin against you, help me to put them away. Just because they're not viewed that way by society, I'm going to deal with them as though they are because I know the one that's looking at it, and that's you. So what we do is we don't excuse, don't excuse petty lust. Don't excuse envy. Don't excuse slander, speaking ill of other people putting down their name I, I see this all over social media it's a socially acceptable thing don't excuse it Jesus told us where slander ultimately leads where hatred ultimately leads it, it ends in murder it begins with simply a bad word don't excuse slander don't excuse a disrespectful spirit toward your husband don't excuse belittling him Speaking badly of him, disrespecting him in the presence of others. Don't excuse the harsh way that you may speak to your son or daughter in a time of impatience. These things will happen, but just don't excuse them. Don't excuse name calling or belittling strangers on social media. Don't excuse the prioritization of a child's sporting event over worship. Jesus gave a parable which was the parable of the great banquet feast and this one strikes me maybe more than any other parable Jesus ever gave because in it the reason why people did not answer the call to the invitation they weren't big atrocities they were everyday life it was work it was family, it was industry, it was business, it was things that were otherwise good. These are the sins of priority. Don't excuse those things. Don't excuse uh, men, don't excuse a lack of gentleness or understanding toward your wife. Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. I'm amazed by that. My prayers before God may be cut off simply because I live with a callous spirit toward my wife. Don't excuse that. Don't excuse a grumpy spirit. Don't excuse immodesty. Don't excuse bitterness, discontentment, or a grumbling spirit. Don't excuse deception. Don't excuse little fibs. Don't excuse the sins that we don't usually call sins look to the living God and say, God, declare me innocent of hidden faults. Keep me back from presumptuous sins and then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. I'm going to take that whip that Jesus had and bring it right into my own heart, which is the temple of the living God and drive out the greed, drive out the lust, drive out the envy. This is how we respond to the gospel now let me finish with a a gospel word this is three lessons not in a row we had one uh, little break between but this is three lessons about putting away sin and I need to say something about the gospel we all commit these sins that list that that I just gave don't excuse this we all do those things every single one of us Before I moved here, I preached in Kingfisher, the book of Romans, for three solid years. 150-something sermons in the book of Romans, and I think I got his point. His, His point is there is none righteous, not a single one, not a preacher, not an elder, not a deacon. There's not one. The standard of God is so high, there's never been a person who's attained to it. Only Jesus the Christ, he's the only one that ever did it. I sin in these ways, and so do you. And the gospel gives us a way to deal with them in in a perpetual way. What we do is we take those sins and we continue not to excuse them. What, what we want to do is we want to take those sins and brush them under the rug or put them out of my mind or pretend they're not there. That's not how we deal with them. We're not going to be perfect, but what we do is we take those sins when we know we've sinned in that way. If I was harsh with my wife or if I was impatient with my son or if I said a bad word about a brother, And I'm feeling the weight of that guilt. I don't push it to the side and let it pile up until it makes me to where I can't see clearly. What I do is I take it to Calvary. I bring it before the cross of Jesus and I lay it down there. God is our father and we are his children and he loves us more than we can even begin to fathom. As a father, I understand a little bit the love of a father, but God's love for us, Jesus said compared to him, our love for our children is evil. You believe that? He loves us that much more than we love our own sons and daughters. He's a good father. He's not looking for a reason to push us out of heaven. He's not looking for a reason to just boot us down. The person who lived faithfully their whole life need not say on their deathbed, I sure hope I did enough. Because the fact is, they didn't do enough. And our God loves us enough that despite that fact, he still receives us and he still brings us in. God is a father who loves us. He sees the sins that we deal with and he says, I have a solution. It's the cross of Calvary. Take those sins to the cross. Bring them to the cross and confess them to God. Look at what this word says. Uh, This is in Romans 3. Paul makes a big theological conclusion. He says, There's no distinction. He just argued that the Gentiles were sinners. Then he said, Even the Jews who had the law of God, they're sinners. He says, There is no distinction, none at all. And he says, For all have sinned and, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. This is a gift. Through the redemption, my boys the other day said, what does that word mean? Redemption means you are, you're bought back. You're bought back. You were owned by sin, owned by death, owned by Satan, whatever, you're bought back. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. What's that mean? This is a mean of divine appeasement. If God is angry at me for my sin, and he is, Romans 1.18, how can I, a mere mortal, appease him in his wrath? There's nothing I can offer. His standard is perfection. What can I do? I can give him the one thing that he gave me to give him, namely Jesus the Christ. God gave Jesus as a propitiation for our sins by his blood, That appeases God's wrath, and it is to be received by faith. And what that means, to receive it by faith, is, first of all, to believe that it's true, that 2,000 years ago, Jesus really did die on a cross at Golgotha. This really did happen. The first thing is just to believe that it happened. And then the second, and this is the most important, perhaps, in all the world, is to know that it happened because of my sin. It's not, I, God, Jesus did not just die for the sin of the murderer and the sin of the thief. He died for my, he didn't just die for the sin of my neighbor or for the sin of that person who compared to me, I think, is quite worse. He died for my sins. Jesus died to cover me of my sins. And so what we do is we go there by faith, knowing I need this. I need the cross and what that's going to do is it's going to allow me to come down to my knees and to receive it humbly I'm not standing there when we partake in communion there's a reason why we're sitting I'm not standing there I'm there only because of the living God so what we do is brothers and sisters those sins that you know of don't excuse them Take them to God. Say, God, these are the things. This is the thing that I did. These are the struggles that I have. Please forgive me. Lay them before him and be resolved in your mind to go forward repentant. And when you sin again in a moment of passion or whatever, bring it before the throne of God and say, God, I did this. I'm sorry. It was wrong. It was a sin against you. Please forgive me. And constantly, perpetually, for all of your days, the promise from 1 John is he will forgive. He is faithful and just to do that. We have the antidote for the sin of the world. We can lead by example and we can send out the gospel message. Let's first start by cleansing our own temple. If you have any need at all, if you need the prayers of the elders, if you need a study with one of our ministers, if you need to give your life to Jesus, If you believe in this Savior and you believe that he died for you, then what the scripture was this morning from Romans 6 is those of us who've been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death in order that just as he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you and I too might have and might walk in newness of life. If you have any need at all, this is an opportunity and we welcome you while we stand and sing.